0: Okay, I, I, I said in the email to you that um, we'd go back over um, the model of the dream work uh, and the dream, etc., cetera, because there are a lot of complexities there and um, I'm conscious that not, not all of you could make the, the makeup seminar uh, on Wednesday evening. So I wanted to <coughs> give us another chance to um, kind of... Go over this material, uh, and partly just to, uh, you know, have a question and answer session about um, some of the some of the problems and complexities um, that it raises. Um, now, when in my lecture last week, uh, I talked about uh, the model of dream interpretation and the way Freud distinguishes what he's doing from other ways in which dreams have been. Uh, interpreted, um, and I talked about mainly about uh, uh, the, the psychological processes that uh, and, the, and the and the psychical structure that are in place and that are preconditions for in Freud's account for the for, for dreams to happen in the first place. And in particular, I went over um, the, some of the basic distinctions between. Uh, manifest and latent, and the complexity of the relationships between manifest and latent, manifest content or dream scene on the one hand, and the latent dream thoughts on the other. And, and in particular, what a lot of the book is devoted to, which is the processes of the dream work, okay? and the way he um, <coughs> distinguishes between, in particular, the two, key, the two most important categories, condensation and displacement, but also um, the question of representability um, uh, uh, or the putting of things into scenic form. Uh, <clears throat> and we didn't say anything really about secondary revision, um, but the ways in which, in retrospect, uh, even in the both in the process of kind of waking from the dream and trying to make sense of the dream, and even more so in the process of verbalizing the dream. Um, to someone else, uh, a process of revision, of secondary revision takes place uh, in which what may be disproportionate and um, incoherent in the dream is kind of rendered more intelligible, rendered more sensible uh, uh, as it were. Um, may, and so the processes of trying to um, reorder the dream from the point of view of the ego okay, are already um, are almost part of the production of the dream itself, so to speak. So that uh, what, what may have been experienced um, and, and, and even in the telling um, still appears to be irrational or crazy or hyper intense or internally conflicted. Um, in the very process of, uh, of, of of both waking from it and trying to verbalise it, as it were, starts imposing on it the Categories of intelligibility of cause and effect, uh, etc., um, by which the ego makes sense of its own experiences and Freud goes on to make an interesting point about that that this facade almost a retrospective facade that the ego constructs in, in that kind of terminal moment of the of, the, of, of dream production, if you like, the, the textualization of the dream i 'm calling it um, <clears throat> Can itself be oddly betraying of the very things of it, that it seeks to hide. Um, so the retrospective, design, you know, reordering of the dream um, can nevertheless um, itself uh, expose um, some of the uh, repressed or hidden dimensions of the dream. And I think the idea of secondary revision, particularly from the point of view of literary studies and literary analysis, is really, really very important because it characterises so much literary work and indeed not just literary work but you know, particularly in, in popular cultural productions as it were in which something happens in the course of a film uh, or, a, or a story um, that is in all kinds of ways over the top and excessive um, and exciting stroke disturbing and then in the final moments of the narrative as it were everything is cleaned up uh, uh, and people are assigned back to their Uh, their proper and intelligible places as it were uh, and um, the narrative suddenly shifts gear uh, as a way of drawing uh, in order to produce closure as it were. So narrative closure which is also of course ideological closure in so many texts is that moment of secondary revision in which as it were um, as all the strings are being drawn together to an ending um, um, (coughs) uh, a kind of Uh, 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 a re-scripting takes place. I mean you'd be familiar with this say, very often say in Shakespeare comedies uh, where suddenly you know the the, the, the generically uh, correct or proper ending uh, of a marriage in which everybody um, is paired up with everybody else as it were um, and um, by hook or by crook as it were um, uh, to have a proper comic ending Um, we're all familiar with uh, in, in films where um, this sort of thing happens as well uh, where um, embarrassing or difficult characters are killed off uh, where you know, a romantic ending is constructed um, which didn't look like it was necessarily on the cards halfway through, um, in which a kind of tidying up operation which is both formal um, but which is also um, uh, normative and ideological um, so, the, so, the, so uh, the idea of secondary revision I think is a quite valuable one. Um, <coughs> uh, and I think one of the... You can see it. Uh, we would, in the seminar uh, last week we talked about the, the botanical monograph dream. Um, and it's interesting because in that dream an infantile moment um, appears very uh, clearly in Freud's associations around the dream of the botanical monograph. And he... He, he traces it back to um, a memory, which he himself calls a screen memory, a memory that's screening off something else, um, where as a child he or so he recalls, uh, his father gave him and his sister uh, an extremely expensive very beautiful book of photographs of, of Persian, Persian antiquities uh, and said, hey kids, why don't you tear it apart? <laughs> you know, now, you know, you only have to think about that for a minute uh, uh, to think of the implausibility of that, as it were, that some kind of bourgeois Jewish parterfamilius in Vienna in the in the eighteen fifties or whenever it may have been um, gave an extremely expensive a uh, book with photographs of antiquities in it to a five-year-old and a three-year-old to, to rip apart. You know, it seems extremely unlikely, as it were. So a process, if you like, of secondary revision has already entered into that memory uh, where the authority figure gives permission to do this forbidden thing, or to do this thing that represents something forbidden, as it were. Um, uh, and An inversion of some kind has taken place from, uh, one might infer a scene in which actually the authority figure uh, was extremely angry, um, uh, and and maybe more than just angry, uh, at at the kind of uh, wanton destruction by two small children of, a, of an extremely expensive and beautiful book. Books do not get torn up in Jewish families, right? Jewish fathers do not give expensive books to their children to shred, right? So you know there's something, uh, a, a, you know, a rewriting or a re has kind of taken place in the very form of the memory. And I suggested a, an analogy with that moment in um, the Miss Lucy R case where uh, the dying mother on her deathbed says to the governess, I want you to take my place with the children uh, and the governess takes it as a sort of, you know, uh, an unheard of, unimaginable permission from the mother figure to take her place with the father and not just with the children. Um, so secondary revision, which I had said nothing about much, um, is, is, is quite an interesting um, uh, sort of analytical category. Um, so so, the, so, But I've, we focused on, as it were, um, dream work, um, the processes of symbolic working through, working over transformation by which the latent dream thoughts are turned into um, the dream scene. Um, and that's one area in which um, people may want to um, sort of uh, have questions about uh, uh, further questions about how that operates, or what the what the categories are, etc. Um, the other question is, uh, and uh, is maybe something about um, <coughs> the instigator, the instigator of the dream, that is to say, the dream thoughts. Okay, the dream wish. Okay, for Freud, um, nails his colours to the mask uh, about uh, that dreams are produced by wishes. Okay. Um, and even anxiety dreams are produced by wishes, and that's, you know, in a sense, that would seem to be a pretty obvious prima facie contradiction of Freud's proposition. How come, you know, we wake up screaming from some dreams? How come we wake up in a sweat? How come the content of the dreams is horrific? Okay. Um, Now, in a way, Freud has, you know, a, know, a, a, a strong argument against... That, the obviousness of that, as it were. Um, <clears throat> because quite often anxiety dreams, that is, say, dreams in which the dreamer wakes up in a state of anxiety, um, the anxiety is there, but the content isn't appropriate to the anxiety. That is to say, somebody wakes up in a state of, of distress and then thinks, but, but, but you know, that, what, what was distressing about that? Why am I feeling these intense feelings that are so intense that I actually wake up with them? That is to say, there's a disconnect, and sometimes that's a really obvious disconnect between the affective state of the dreamer, which actually wakes him up from, from the dream, and the content of the dream, which doesn't seem, once you think about it consciously and start to retell it to somebody, disturbing at all. Why would I be so distressed about that? Okay. Um, <coughs> and even in cases where the content of the dream seems appropriate to some kind of fear or anxiety, particularly anxiety, you know, Freud's argument is that um, that's not an argument that the dream isn't driven by a wish. What it tells us is that the wish is very intense and it is of such a nature that the ego responds to it with anxiety, that the ego is in an anxious state about its own deepest, strongest wishes, which it feels out of, out of control and, and, and it has to defend itself against. Um, uh, so that, that a dream which in some ways represents a wish in an indirect or symbolic way may be as fulfilled may produce a tremor of horror in the ego. Um, so the presence of, other, of, of negative um, and disturbing affects is not in itself an argument against that proposition that what drives or energizes the formation of the dream is a wish. Because Freud's proposition is that it's an unconscious wish, a wish that has been repressed. A wish, in other words, that has been repudiated by the ego. And, and that is almost a precondition for its, its becoming a potential source for something like a dream or, an, or a symptom. Okay, so we have the wishes. Um, And and there's more to be said about that. And I've given you a little anthology um, of moments from the interpretation of dreams, mainly also from one of the letters, where um, Freud comes back again and again to this question of um, the, if you like, archaic or infantile element in the dream, and particularly in relationship to the dream wish. And I, I just want to go through those in a minute. Um, but there is a question, obviously, about how do those infantile or archaic sources of the dream relate to the whole web of associations that, that the dreamer produces, um, which may not reference in any direct way or, or, or any immediate or obvious way uh, uh, anything like an infantile memory, for instance. Um, in fact, what in, in, the, in the dreams that Freud analyses, particularly his own dreams, and particularly, notoriously even, um, the dream of Irma's injection, which he offers in Chapter 2 as the specimen dream, uh, Freud says nothing about infantile sources or dimensions of the dream. He draws a veil. He says at various points, well, I know where these associations are going and I'm going to stop at this point, or i draw a veil, or I do not wish to penetrate any further, or whatever. Um, so it's clear that, it, uh, if you pay attention to what he's saying at different moments, that he's aware of the way in which the dream associations lead off into other areas. That, In other words, the interpretation he's given is far from exhausting the dream. Okay, uh, but uh, associations around the Irma dream, around the botanical monograph dream, around a whole lot of other dreams that he, he puts through um, detailed analysis. Uh, there are a set of associations and linguistic puns and connections and etc. which are appropriate to or um, within within the capacities of an adult consciousness. Okay, um, uh, and so you might say, well, mm, how does that relate to right that whole wonderful uh, sort of um, network, associational field um, that. Um, Freud and, and, and his patients produce around their dreams. Uh, these are clearly the products of, as it were, an adult preconscious. Um, and uh, where's the unconscious in that associational field? Well, you can say, up to a point, you know, that uh, uh, even staying at the level that Freud stays at with the Irma dream, that... Um, Freud is angry and um, offended by his friend Otto, uh, and uh, the dream has called into question his integrity and capacity as a doctor and as a therapist, um, and he's attempting to um, defend himself and to, and to shift the blame, um, uh, and that's what he's unearthing as the meaning of the dream, and as far as that goes, that's that's fine. It seems indeed to emerge from the associational field with its clusters of the Wilhelm group and the Otto group, you know, friends, enemies, um, a slightly remote uh, authority figure like Dr. M, uh, who is also mocked because he's given such a, a, a medically ludicrous um, uh, diagnosis of, of, um, of Irma herself and why, why her illness is persisting. Um, <coughs> And then, of course, there's the multiple overdetermined figure of Irma and the sort of nine at least nine different other women who who, who contribute to the formation of this composite dream figure, a process uh, you know an end product of an intense process of of condensation. Um, to, and I want to say about that um, you can 't you can't say a lot about it, but um, it does. One of the remarks Freud makes, or one of the associations Freud makes to the figure of Irma uh, provokes the question, which would be a a leading question a lot of the material we'll be looking at in the course. Um, In the case of the dream, you could say the question goes, where is the dreamer in the dream? Where is the dreamer in the dream? Well, there's Freud the dreamer, and Freud appears in the dream, so, you know, Freud the dreamer would appear to be there under the name Freud in the dream. And uh, we'll ask this question about later material in the course. Where is the fantasist inscribed in their fantasy? Well, there sometimes seems to be a direct self-representation in the fantasy, just as Freud appears in his own dream. So an obvious answer would be, where's Freud in his dream? Well, Freud's there, (laughs) at the centre of his dream, uh, as it were, um, angrily um, defending himself, examining Irma um, and... um, uh, listening to and observing the remarks of his friends and his rivals and his, his authority figure um, and then uh, uh, and, and he's, he seems to be the central consciousness of the dream okay? the dream ends with that extraordinary moment that I talked about in the seminar where um, where he sees in bold type as it were up there in the air like a, an hallucination he sees the chemical formula for trimethylamine <laughs> Um, and one needs to interrogate that. He, doesn't, he traces the association to his friend Fleece and the chemical element uh, uh, that, that is associated with sexual processes in the human body um, but he doesn't say well, the form in which that takes. It doesn't just appear as a noun. It appears as a large um, visual diagram in bold type hovering in the air at the, end, at the final moment of the dream. Um, Let's interrogate that, and I'll say something more about that. Um, So there's a field of, you know, friends, enemies, authority figures, the enigmatic female figure, one of the associations of which is a symptom of Freud's own. So if it, at the dominant level, or the most obvious level, Freud's Freud in his dream, well, there he is. He's like the camera in the film. He's the central consciousness that's registering everything that's happening in the dream. Actually, one of the associations links him to Irma herself. And therefore, that one of the puzzling places uh, uh, Freud might be found hidden in his own dream is in the figure of Irma. Okay, now that is Now, Freud doesn't register the implications of that, Mark he doesn't explicitly. We know from his letters, actually, he was, he was aware of a lot else going on in the dream that he doesn't put in his book. Um, uh, so the dreamer may therefore be inscribed in their dream in more than one place, and not just in the obvious place, the place marked Freud, uh, as it were, or marked with the name of the dreamer. The, Fre- the dreamer may be inscribed elsewhere within that, the scenario of the dream. Okay, I'll stop momentarily at this point, um, and ask uh, if there are any questions, problems, confusions people want to want to to raise about d- these processes of the dream work. If, if a character can be in more, for, the fantasist can be in more than one place in the dream. As the uh, uh, therapist, how do you Know where that person is. Or it's just well, answered. you don't. You have to listen. You have to wait and listen <laughs> and to see what they come up with. You don't know in advance. It's completely open as an interpretive problem. Okay. Obviously, well, I can say obviously, but I can, maybe it's possible to have a dream in which you appear in the dream, but actually the you that appears in the dream has really nothing to do with you at all. So you, the you in the dream is, is like a mask. Okay. Uh, now, that's not, of, that's not the case, the Omer dream. Freud, the Freud in the dream clearly in all kinds of ways um, is Freud the dreamer. But actually, Freud the dreamer is more than just the, his representative in, in his own dream. Okay. And he produces... We only know that because he produces his association that one of the symptoms that Omer has is actually you know, what he had, a pain and a symptom, a physical bodily symptom that he has, which his dream work has attributed to Omer. That is to say, at some level, the dream work then has carried out an identification between him and Oma. That's puzzling and interesting. You know, one would then need to kind of work on that with the dreamer to find out further ramifications of what that might be. But what it just enables one to glimpse, and it will be something that will be on the agenda, as I say, um, uh, uh, in in later seminars, uh, is that uh, the dreamer may appear at different points, or the fantasist, may appear or may be inscribed or marked at different other points. <coughs> Laplanche calls the unconscious fantasy, um, which can be in a dr- behind a dream or, or, or a symptom, or a, n- or a number of other products as of the mind, um, a scenario with multiple points of entry. A scenario with multiple points of entry. Okay? So there's nothing to say in advance that the dreamer of the dream... Is going to be found where you most expect to find them, or the fantasist, where you most expect to find them. And what this kind of does is raise the question, in a sense, the next question I was going to say, people, so I want to give you a moment to think about or to ask questions about the processes of dream work and condensation and displacement. But your, your question moves us on, as it were, to the question of the dream thoughts, uh, okay, uh, and the energizing. Uh, source of the dream as it were. Now, Alex you sent me a quite interesting email with a question. I don't know if you want to sort of pose your question again in the seminar because that will bring up some of these issues Essentially what I was asking was what is the nature of the dream material is it a linguistic formation or is it some kind of pre-linguistic experience Right, right Okay, do you want to elaborate that more? Um, Do you want to say any more about it at this point? So you're saying, what's the relationship between the dream process as described by Freud and language? Where does language come in? Yeah, because my concern in all of this was at the point where we end up with a dream text, at some point there's been an authorship of that text. And what I was confused about was when the earliest point is at which all of this experience becomes linguistic formations. When, you mean when does it get put into language? Or? Right, yeah. Or is it always already a linguistic thing? Right. It's a dream only an expression of the language you already have as memory. Right, okay. Well, I in a way, your question about language... Do people understand the question though, about where does language come in? Right. Okay. Okay. Certainly, yeah, a word in a dream um, doesn't function in the way it would function in ordinary speech. So in this. What's Does the unconscious think it works? Like, well it doesn't think or it has a particular uh, kind of linguistic grounding as opposed to all its cruel language acquisition. Yeah, I think that's the gist of the too possible. I mean particular words can be drawn into the unconscious or can be um as it were um conscripted. If you like, as as representatives of certain unconscious elements or contents, I mean, that, and they're therefore given, um, and and sometimes they can appear as nonsensical terms or words, and um, that happens in some of the dreams Freud Freud analyzes, in which nonsense words appear with great intensity in the middle of the dream. Um, but an example of how that needn't be the case: that the 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 word or the phrasing. The, Um, can still continue to function in conscious language while having somehow or other being conscripted, silently conscripted by some unconscious wish. And that's the way in which Freud develops an ear for the way in which certain phrases can operate in different contexts, both a conscious context within ordinary discourse, um, but it gets its power, its force from some other scenario. Okay, the, the, of which the speaker is unconscious. And he develops a very good ear for that. I mean, the one I've cited to you a couple of times in seminars is in the case of Miss R, where he hears the phrase, taking taking the mother's place. okay, And he spins it round, you know, a sort of quarter turn and thinks, not just with the children but with the father. And he makes this interpretive leap and says, you're in love with the, your employer, aren't you? And she's taken aback by that for a minute. And then she says, yes, yes, actually, that is right. I've tried not to think about it. I pushed it out of my mind, but you're right. I mean, it's, later Freud and most analysts would not make that a leap quite so rapidly, you know, would kind of work up to it rather more tentatively these days. Um, but it, it worked at that point because he had heard something, as it were, in that phrase. Another example would be, um, in, in the, remember in the... The 1896 further remarks paper we looked at with the parano- case of the paranoid woman okay, in which certain, she, she's, certain phrases take on an intensity of implication um, one of them was this odd thing she has, at her practice she has of ringing, to, uh, ringing up her, her brother and, uh, and making an appointment to see him and then coming there and just looking at him and going away without saying something okay? and when asked about this she just said I, I just wanted to look at him I just, he'd know. I just wanted to look at him. And then we find out through uh, processes of um, you know, connection and association on her part you know, that behind a lot of her symptoms is, a, is an incestuous, erotic scenario between her and her brother where they looked at each other. Uh, uh, and, this, and, the, and so it has a double meaning. It has a, a, a meaning for the conscious adult, which is he knows, he knows why I'm upset. He, only he can tell me. I need to see him, but I can't say anything. He has to tell me. Um, and behind that is, is, is the other meaning of, you know, I, she's still in love with her brother. I want to see him again like I used to. I want to look at him again like I used to. There's a kind of unconscious, um, if you like, hijacking of the phrase. <laughs> That then functions ambiguously in two different contexts. So in that case, it would be a good example. So sort of, that's the sort of thing that Lacan picks up on when he produces his famous formulation, the unconscious is structured like a language. The unconscious is structured like... Well, it's ambiguous in the French. It's, uh, it, it, it's um, uh, common language. Uh, com can mean as or like. And actually in English, there's a logical <coughs> distinction. If you are functioned if you're structured as a language, right, you're identified with language, you are a language, okay? Whereas if you're structured like a language, then there's an homology, but it's not an identity. So there's that, in Lacan's own formulation, um, there's an ambiguity about that. Um, uh, But there's a... I mean, I don't... I mean, I would reject Lacan's famous proposition um, that the unconscious con- is structured like a language. And Freud himself make, makes it very clear that language belongs, verbal language we're talking about here, belongs with the secondary processes uh, in, in, the, in the pre-conscious system. Uh, uh, the very categories through which the ego operates, which is non-contradiction um, uh, and um, a, a certain kind of logical consistency, etc. The unconscious processes, the, what he calls the primary processes that are most uh, accessible to us in the form of the dream work, yeah, of the, the sliding, of, con- of, of displacement and condensation, um, uh, are, are, are profoundly alinguistic. And that's Freud's own position. Um, uh, so that when, which is not to say that verbal material can't be drawn into the field of the unconscious, but it does so only at the price of. As it were, standing in for something else or, or just not function, functioning semiotically uh, at all. Um, because it's uh, the words, when a word is, as it were, taken up into the unconscious field, um, what organises it are uh, the processes of condensation and displacement. Um, now, I don't want really to go into spend much time on Lacan, but I'll simply say he uses a very much contested and problematic model of language taken from a reduced version of Saussure, the great French linguist um, and he tries to sort of identify the categories of language as Saussure formulated them, the paradigmatic and syntagmatic horizontal and vertical axes of, of speech with the processes of condensation and displacement. And this is the whole argument about that elsewhere um, which I won't go into here because we're not looking at, at that. So. Um, the pro- i mean—in a way, um, my argument would be that what Lacan mistakes the unconscious for the preconscious, where, uh, or for those moments where a linguistic formation, um, while continually continuing to function uh, at the level of conscious discourse, is kind of conscripted or, if you like, hijacked by some element of the unconscious. So it functions in a double, in a double way. Um, But it still leaves your question, if you like, about what is the relationship between um, the energy source of the dream and the form it takes. And, And Freud is really concerned with form, almost like a formalist literary critic. He's concerned with, 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 with the production of a particular form and how that <coughs> takes place and what are the processes by which that takes place. And so as a way of kind of trying to respond to Alex's question about, you know, there's, there are um, elements of the dream or the field of associations around the manifest dream that are clearly um, uh, inescapably bound up with conscious language and conscious discourse, and how do they relate to uh, the unconscious dimensions of the dream? Okay. Is this a question of th- the pre-linguistic and, and the linguistic, and how would you get from the pre-linguistic to the linguistic, or not? Now, some of these questions will be investigated theoretically further, with later post-Freudian thinkers we'll be looking at in the course. Laplanche in week 8, and his theory of the enigmatic signifier, um, that is transmitted from the parent to the infant. Um, and Julia Christova, his work we'll be looking at next term, with her concept of the semiotic chora and, and her argument about the ways in which the very basic sound forms of language, the phonemes that make up you know, that core of sounds that constitute English, as distinct from French or, or whatever, um, those basic phonemes and sound forms of the language you know the, the the infant doesn't pick them up pedagogically. You know um, by learning them off by heart or from a dictionary. The infant receives the basic sound forms of the language from the mother mainly, but from the nurturer, from the from the adult nurturer, from, from, from its very first moments of life. It hears these sound forms, and they're not just um, his relation to them is an academic, <laughs> like learning a second language. Okay, they're charged with affect. They're charged with drive on the part of the mother or the adult nurturer. So that the infant receives the basic um, mater- sonic materials, sonorous materials of language, as it were, as carriers of affect from day one, as it were. Um, so the infant isn't as yet a speaking subject, but the infant is, as it were, um, immersed in uh, a kind of what... A, a, a field, an intersubjective field with the mother, let's say it's the mother but it could be some other nurturer, nurturing figure um, for the mother that she calls the symbiotic cora. The, yeah, semiotic cora. sorry so we, we're looking at that further when we get to Christopher where well, that, that kind of thing is developed Look, I think in staying with Freud and at this point I think I'd just like to work through some of the passages in the uh, little anthology I've given you where he goes back to this relationship, which is a temporal relationship, a time relationship of the kind that we saw in the trauma papers of the 1890s, between earlier and later moments, earlier and later experiences, earlier and later memories, as it were. And he privileges the earlier ones. Okay? Uh, and if you start at the first extract I've given you, it's just from a letter to Fleece, quite late in the day. 1898. So he's in the, in the midst of, of, of finishing the book, The Interpretation of Dreams. And he says uh, biologically, dream life seems to me to derive entirely from the residues of the prehistoric period of life between the ages of one and three, the same period which is the source of the unconscious and alone contains the etiology, that is to say, the causes of all the psychoneuroses, the period normally characterized by by amnesia, analogous to hysterical (coughs) amnesia. This formula suggests itself to me. What is seen in the prehistoric period produces dreams. What is heard in it produces fantasies. And that connection between hearing and fantasy is something he explores in other letters to Fleece. Um, What is experienced sexually in it produces the psychoneuroses. The repetition of what was experienced in that period is in itself the fulfillment of a wish. The repetition of what was experienced in that period is in itself a fulfillment of a wish. A recent wish only leads to a dream if it can put itself into connection with material from this prehistoric period. If the recent wish is a derivative of a prehistoric one or can get itself adopted by one. So not any wish, particularly not any wish from the day's residues, from the dream day before the dream, um, can just generate a dream. It's only if that is, as it were, put into connection with, adopted by, um, uh, if you like, um, an unconscious wish, um, that the... the the conditions necessary for the production of the dream come into being. So there he's kind of, um, in a semi-speculative way, trying this idea out in a letter to Willem Fleece. Now I want to move on to uh, a moment in uh, an essay Freud wrote, uh, 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 and it came out I think the year after The Interpretation of Dreams. This is called On Dreams. It's an abbreviated (laughs) statement of his dream theory. And it's just a paragraph that I think is really interesting um, in relation to the question of representability, OK? Um, uh, and, and particularly the visual and um, scenographic or, 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 dr- or dramatic dimensions of dreaming, as it were. Um, so I've, 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 I've um, bracketed the paragraph. He says, the psychical material of the dream thoughts habitually includes recollections of impressive experiences <coughs> not infrequently <coughs> dating back to early childhood which are thus themselves perceived as a rule as situations having a visual subject matter. Situations having a visual subject matter. Whatever the possibility, wherever the possibility arises, this portion of the dream thoughts exercises a determining influence upon the form, right, the form, Freud is being a formalist here, upon the form taken by the content of the dream. It constitutes, as it were, a nucleus of crystallization, attracting the material of the dream thoughts to itself, and thus affecting their distribution. I think that's a key formulation, It constitutes, as it were, a nucleus of crystallization, attracting the material of the dream thoughts to itself and thus affecting their distribution. So there are the dream thoughts. They're distributed in a certain pattern, if you like, um, because they're, as it were, magnetized by what he's calling here a nucleus of crystallization. Now, I think we can partly give an example of that in the Irma dream, uh, and in the, um, in in uh, I talked about it in the seminar, uh, in that extraordinary visualization moment at the end of the dream, where uh, all this technical chemistry suddenly becomes, you know, a visual diagram. Okay, um, and um, let me just remind you of that structure. It suddenly gets mapped. Um, uh, now remember, he sees the tru- he sees the structure of wasn't it trimethylamine? Uh, and Freud, somebody trained as a scientist, and all well, this sort of stuff comes, um, you know, uh, automatically to mind to him. Uh, now that that was the formula for that was in, wasn't it? N is that right? in ch three no, that's three times right. Okay. Now, the structure of that that he sees, written large, hanging in the air like an hallucination at the end of the dream, is something like this. One atom of nitrogen connected with three uh, complex molecules, which are themselves made up of groups of three, in which one atom of carbon is connected to three atoms of hydrogen. And again, so three groups of three groups, as it were. Let's see. Uh, and in a letter um, uh, uh, to, to um, I think is it to Fleece, no, it's not to Fleece, it's to somebody else, um, he comments on what that means. He, he himself realises uh, that. the That that There's a grouping there, (coughs) if you like, a groupings, three groupings of three. Uh, There's the figure of the the woman, Uh, there's uh, the figure of the authority figure, or father figure, and there are his rivals, his peers, if you like. Otto, particularly Otto and Wilhelm, but there are others. Um, his peers, who are made up of rivals and friends, or supporters, okay? So you've got, in, in effect, the structure of a drama, okay? A sonography, the bare bones of, a, of an emotional sonography. And um, uh, in, in different people can fill different places within that structure. But it's, the chemical formula is, as it were, symbolically registering uh, what that nucleus of crystallization that Freud talks about in the passage I've just read out, round which the, dream th- the latent dream thoughts will, will gather like, if you like, like iron filings around a magnet in, in a magnetic field, as it were, iron filings that will be, take their, 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 their um, positioning from the lines of force that constitute the unconscious field. Um, And the unconscious field for Freud is organised like that. (laughs) That is to say, as a drama with Freud at the centre and located in in a kind of series of um, fraught and intense relationships to uh, the figure of the woman who is both desired or wished for uh, and partly identified with uh, and, um, uh, and partly... Uh, a hostile figure, uh, with uh, a, a, an authority figure or father figure and with kind of rivalrous and friendly um, peers, as it were, so it constitutes a sort of drama, a drama as it were. Um, and uh, uh, various people working through Freud's own associations and his letters, etc., you know, kind of try to track that back to particular memories that Freud produces elsewhere. But the point here is really a point about uh, uh, what he calls a nucleus of crystallization which is archaic or infantile, um, which is highly charged, um, uh, which involves intense wishes, uh, intense wishes that have been both repressed and thereby preserved, um, but which uh, are reactivated again by uh, situations in contemporary life. Uh, and which rhyme with those situations. And we've, this kind of thing we've seen at work in the trauma material we've looked at, both the papers we looked at, whether it's the case of Emma or Miss R. or um, uh, the paranoid woman, but also in the Hoffman story that we looked at uh, uh, last week, okay, where there is that traumatic, uh, I'm calling it, primal scene um, uh, of the Spanish cavalier, uh, the seduced mother, uh, and... Uh, the figure of the, in, the, the child or the infant who imagines himself or has been told he's as it were in the mother's womb and the drama played out around uh, the diamonds as an expression of desire um, uh, and involving the death of the male figure um, and the ways in which uh, in adult situation after adult situation uh, cardiac um, the subject, you know, the the near psychotic, um, borderline subject, uh, who is compelled to act out that situation, against his own wishes. He's horrified uh, at the voices he hears driving him. Um, and the, the, one of the key interpretive questions, of course, was where is Hoffman? Sorry, not where is Hoffman? Where is Cardiac in his fantasy? Who you know? Who where can he be located uh, in the fantasy? Um, uh, and particularly when it's a question of him, in some sense, inheriting his mother's desire, his desire for the jewels clearly can be traced back to the figure of the mother, um, and, and, and it's not just n- enough to take the jewels as she took them, but that the male bearer of the jewels has to be dead. And he starts off just stealing, and at a certain point that's not enough, and he's driven then to say not just steal but kill. Okay, the scene. A scene has to be acted out in in um, in its fullness, and even then, it, it doesn't go away. Um, so again, you could say in that literary example, um, you know, the the uh, it's hardly a memory. Um, this scene that dominates his mental life of the mother, the Spanish cavalier, uh, and the jewels um, is the nucleus of crystallisation around which other scenarios in his life um, uh, uh, repeat and uh, replay as it were um, and, uh, and it's in relationship to that of course that one then needs to think about the extraordinary scenario then after his death where these things still seem to live on in the narrative um, Mademoiselle Scudery herself inserts herself into that scenario in order to bring it to an end as it were, in that strange moment where she comes to court dressed in black, wearing the diamonds, the jewels, as it were. Uh, And what is the significance of that moment? Um, Does it later rest, this repetition compulsion unleashed by this scene? So we've met these kinds of concerns on Freud's part um, uh, in in the trauma material, and one can find them again and again in, in, uh, in literary and other texts. Okay, I've got a few more minutes. I'd just like to move on to a couple of other passages in the little anthology I've given you. Um, he's partly making this point over and over again, um, in the, if from 3.11 on to 3.12. Um, uh, the bottom of 3.11... Um, I've been compelled to ask myself whether this characteristic of trains of thoughts reaching back to earliest childhood um, may not be a further essential (laughs) precondition of dreaming. Stated in general terms, this would imply that every dream was linked in its manifest content with the recent experiences and in its latent content with the most ancient experiences. And I have in fact been able to show in my analysis of hysteria that these ancient experiences have... Uh, remained recent in the proper sense of the word up to the immediate present, which is a paradox. Ancient experiences have remained recent. Think about the paradoxical nature of that that statement. But it fits, if you like, um, uh, the the nature of of the repeating trauma that Freud's (coughs) encountering in those early papers. He goes on to say, of the three characteristics of memory and dreams... um, One, the preference for the non-essential material in the content of dreams has been satisfactorily cleared up uh, due to dream distortions. The other two, the emphasis upon the recent and upon infantile material, um, are also uh, crucial and need to be underlined. And uh, if you go to the bottom of that page, um, dreams can include, as an example he's, he's given a page or so beforehand, several wish fulfillments, one alongside the other but a succession of meanings or wish fulfillments may be superimposed on one another, the bottom one being the fulfilment of a wish dating from earliest childhood. Um, And uh, uh, and a little footnote in which he adds, the meanings of dreams are arranged in superimposed layers, and one of the most delicate, though also the most interesting problems of dream interpretation, so a kind of stratification, if you like. Okay, moving on to... Just a couple of formulations, which I think are very suggestive. Um, In the next extract, page 682, uh, a a very striking formulation halfway down the page, I've underlined it. A thought, and as a rule, a thought of something that is wished, i.e., a wish, is objectified in the dream, is represented as a scene, or as it seems to us, it is experienced. So a kind of virtual experience. a virtual wish fulfilment, is objectified in the form of a scene. Uh, uh, He restates that a little bit in the next paragraph. Uh, The thought is represented as an immediate situation with the perhaps omitted, and the other is the fact that this thought is transformed into visual images and speech. Um, Okay. Um, I won't read through them all. I want to just come... uh, The one on 706... Uh, it's interesting, I'll leave you to read that in your own time, where he he tries to describe this layering effect and some of the strata, the psychical strata in the dream. And I'll just finish with, um, uh, where is it? Yes, his metaphor, his famous metaphor of the, capi- the infantile wish as the capitalist of the dream. Okay, that's uh, on the final page, 714. Um, where he gives you, a, if you like, a typology of different dream structures in which different sets of relationships between recent and archaic experiences might obtain. He says, the position may be explained by analogy. A daytime thought may very well be, uh, play the part uh, of the entrepreneur for a dream. But the entrepreneur who, as people say, has the idea and the initiative to carry it out can do nothing without capital. He needs a capitalist who can afford the outlay and the capitalist who provides the psychical outlay for the dream is invariably and indisputably a wish from the unconscious. Sometimes the capitalist is himself the entrepreneur, and indeed in the case of dreams this is the commoner event. An unconscious wish is stirred up by daytime activity and proceeds to construct a dream. So, too, other possible variations in the economic situation that I've taken as an analogy have their parallel in dream processes. The entrepreneur may himself make a small contribution to the capital. Several entrepreneurs may apply to the same capitalist. Several capitalists may combine to put up what is necessary for the entrepreneur. In the same way, we come across dreams that are supported by more than one dream wish, and so, too, with other similar variations which could easily be run through but which are of no further interest to us. Um, but he adds this interesting point as you go over the page. Um, The quantity of of, uh, excitation, in effect libido, put at the disposal of the entrepreneur, is capable of being applied in still greater detail to the purpose of elucidating the structure of dreams. In most dreams, it is possible to detect a central point which is marked by peculiar sensory intensity, as I've shown on pages, etc. etc., This central point is, as a rule, the direct representation of wish fulfillment, But if we undo the displacements brought about by the dream work, we find that the psychical intensity of the elements of the dream thoughts has been replaced by the sensory intensity of the elements in the content of the dream. And he, he, he develops that a little bit further in that paragraph. But the idea that moments of most sensory vividness are the places to interrogate. Because that, that's where, as it were, um, the condensation and, and um, intersection uh, of unconscious dream wishes uh, can be detected at their most um, overdetermined and most intense. Okay, I'd better finish there uh, so the next class can come in. Um, but I, I'm trying just then to make the connection back to uh, the trauma material that Freud is thinking about at the same time as he's writing the dream book. Okay. Um, You might have these in mind uh, when we talk about Gradiva tomorrow.